Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Hi, I'm Sammy Peterson, and welcome to The Beverage Report. Today, we sit down with Professor Danny Kwa to discuss COVID-19, Singapore, and policy. Professor Kwa is the Dean and Lee Ka-Sheng Professor of Economics at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy of the National University of Singapore. He's also, I'm sure proudly, a former head of the economics department here at LSE. Professor Kwa is well known for his research on growth, development, and macroeconometrics, as well as areas like the weightless economy, power relations, and global economic history. Besides having taught at universities like Harvard, MIT, LSE, Tsinghua, and NUS, he's had policy positions and consulting positions in Malaysia, Singapore, the Bank of England, and the World Bank. We'll start by looking at Professor Kwa's recent work, secondly, going to economics teaching and research, thirdly, Singapore and COVID-19, fourth, policy in the WHO globally, and fifth and lastly, the post-pandemic world. Professor Kwa, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Certainly, it's a great pleasure. Great great pleasure to get to speak to to you, yeah. Glad to hear it. So just first off, uh, how have you been adjusting to life under COVID and uh, what you've been working on most recently? well, the, the work that I've been doing is uh, most recently on income inequality. And it touches on some of the things that we're going to talk about, but it's, uh, it takes a big data approach to try and understand why the global narrative on inequality has emerged the way that it has. Uh, what that research does is it documents some facts about inequality, poverty reduction, experiences around the world. And it suggests that um, the global situation is actually a lot better than we give it credit for. Okay, so abstracting from what's happening to COVID-19, nonetheless, the, the call for how something must be done about income inequality is, is loud and it's plain and you cannot deny what people think about it. So one of the things I'm trying to do is to use uh, a big data cloud uh, computing approach to try and understand why uh, globally people's emotions have emerged the way that they have. So it's a big data approach to understanding the uh, emotions that people have on income inequality. Fantastic. How are things in London? I wouldn't actually know. I'm back home in Denmark right uh, now. But uh, okay. I hear that it's not doing quite as well as in Denmark nor Singapore uh, during COVID. Oh. But well, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, but mm-hmm. moving on from uh, from your most recent work, let's get on to the first section about what you've been doing uh, in your career most recently. So, right now you're writing a new book called "The Marketplace mm-hmm. Approach to World Order." So, could you tell us something about what it's about and what you aim to achieve with it? Okay, so this book, I think of it as a it's a more balanced, less ideological, less power-focused way to thinking about relations between nations. And to do this, it uses economic ideas. It uses ideas about the marketplace. And at this point, many observers, many, many observers who are not necessarily economists will say, how can you be even more ideological, even less balanced, than using the marketplace to think about anything. Because after all, 
isn't economics the discipline that brought us the global financial crisis? Isn't economics the discipline that's responsible for such high income inequality around the world? So I argue in this book that actually economics offers a good alternative, one that takes us away from an almost obsessive concentration, almost obsessive focus on power and how power determines relations between nations. And the way, so to think about what, what this book does, it's valuable to think about, well, by relation between nations, all I mean, I mean, that's what world order is. But the word order in world order comes overloaded with meaning. For many observers, they think that it has, and, and I think rightly, Many observers take order to mean the opposite of disorder. See, for me, order just means what is the state of the world in terms of the relations between nations. But when you take order to mean the opposite of disorder, then you immediately drag into the discussion how, well, of course, it's a good thing to have order as opposed to disorder. And so many observers, many writers are willing to sacrifice a great deal to try to achieve world order. In other words, they're willing to think about power, whether it's economic power, military power, hard power of that kind, coming hand in hand with establishing world order. So in a world where all nations are selfishly pursuing their self-interest, what's to stop them from, what's to stop each of them from trampling over all others to achieve their own goals. Mm. In this way of thinking, a good way for world order to emerge is to have a great power, is to give up the agency that all of us have as nations over to um, a great power, a global hegemon. Mm. In the past, for the last 70 years, we have taken the global hegemon to be the United States. And when we admire the power of the United States, historically, up until a few years ago, when we historically we've admired the power of the United States, we think of that as not just unobjectionable, many of us, but we think of that as a boon to humanity because it is that great power that establishes order in the world. And that's a great public good. It advances all our well-being. So it's this kind of thinking that underpins uh, many theories in international relations, hegemonic stability theory, for instance. The idea that a benevolent dictator, the hegemon, uh, can use his unchallenged standing in the world to enforce an outcome that's good for the world. Now. When the hegemon goes bad, then we, miss, then we have to rethink, was it such a good idea after all? If we have given so much to so much, we handed over, over so much responsibility and power in a self-supporting way to the United States, what happens if the United States loses interest in maintaining world order? So that, that brings us to this discussion of how there are those thinkers who have never thought about world order and its relation to power 
as ever being anything good. World order is simply an outcome determined by power. Power is the key determinant of relations between nations, whether it is good or bad. If the circumstances are right, and that great power seeks to do good in the world, then we've got a world order that's good for the world. But if not, in the views of these thinkers, that's okay still. So in the views of all of this, it, because you know it's power that determines order. And this is a way of thinking that goes back centuries. It goes back millennia. Uh, many of us who are concerned about how relations between the US and China are, think about something that has been popularized, the Thucydides trap, mm -hmm. but the inevitability of war between an incumbent great power and a rising power. And in that thinking, that, that realist way of thinking, that's the way it is because it is power that determines order. And Thucydides over 2000 years ago said, look, you know, you can think about justice, you can think about whatever notion you want for relations between nations or cities. But in reality, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what we must. So that's the view of world order. Now, the way I think about it, economics comes into this by saying, actually, let's think about world order as being an outcome from a marketplace, from demand and supply. And once you move into that domain, actually, uh, things actually look relatively civil because what's the worst that a great power on the supply side of providing world order can do? It will uh, charge a markup over marginal cost. Okay, That's the worst that it does. It's not raping and pillaging the other nations of the world. What do the other nations do? Well, small nations might come on the demand side of that marketplace. But from the economics that all of us learn, the demand side actually has agency. It is able to enforce an outcome through banding together anonymously in a demand curve. And by shifting the demand curve, the smaller nations of the world actually affect the outcome for world order. So actually, economics, despite having the, the bad press that it does about you know, uh, being less than, than serving the good of humanity, actually, when you bring it to thinking about relations between nations, it's actually not such a bad thing. It recasts the argument in terms of what the supply side of a marketplace, the providers of world order can supply, and the demand side, those who consume world order, those who are price takers in the marketplace for world order can do. And it's actually a way to rethink what's going on in the world with the US and China and all other nations. That's what this book is about. So in a way, economics put into international relations is more positive than what we see in international relations Absolutely. in the status quo. That's, uh... I, I think so. I think so. And, and it shares with international relations uh, many key assumptions. It says that the players in the game are self-seeking. Hmm. That's what international relations assumes. Economics assumes that. But in economics, 
we've got something called the fundamental theorem of welfare economics that says that when all players do the best they can under certain conditions, the outcome is actually good for everyone. So in that sense, economics actually offers an optimistic way of operating, uh, of operationalizing an international system. It brings us to, it brings all other kinds of interesting research questions into the, into the domain. It makes us think about normative considerations. In a traditional way of thinking, a Thucydides type way of thinking, one overemphasizes the positive or predictive implications of the analysis. Will the United States and China go to war? One does not ask, is there going to be a good outcome that emerges from that? Because it's just power that determines the outcome. Economics asks, well, when things happen, do they increase the well-being of the players in the game? Or if they don't, what kind of market failure is that? How do we repair that market failure? And it's actually a very positive way to, to rethink uh, relations between nations. So speaking of normative implications, you've translated a lot of IR terms into economics terms. So hegemon becomes monopoly provider, multipolarity becomes oligopoly. So does hegemony then suffer from deadweight loss, just like a monopoly does? And does adding suppliers of world order increase social surplus in a normative way that we should try to strive for? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It, it drags in. Uh, wonderful uh, set of ideas in economics that surrounds welfare evaluation, that evaluating outcomes. Um, it is not the case that tradition, more traditional ways of thinking don't have normative considerations. But to be very clear, those normative considerations that are more typically drawn out are, in my view, ideological, and driven by a priori value judgment. So what do I mean by that? In the discussion of who gets to be the supply of world order, when you ask American scholars, American policymakers, what would be wrong if China became the global hegemon? Because hegemonic stability theory, for instance, just says we want a hegemon. It doesn't say, it doesn't care who that hegemon is. But traditional thinking, in foreign relations cares a lot. And when you speak to scholars, they say, well, we can't have China leading the international system. And this is, this is that variant of normative thinking that's very non-economic because, well, China is an authoritarian state. It's ruled by a Leninist communist party. It shows disdain for human rights, free speech, democracy, rule of law our liberal values. Um, China seeks to shape a world consistent with its authoritarian state and seeks to exercise veto power over all the other neighbors. And from the perspective of economics, and we, we try and think about these and translate, as you say, into economic terms, they don't carry very well because all that economics cares about, the only question that economics focuses it on in a laser beam kind of way is if you have an alternative provider, 
does that provider supply you, the consumer, with the quality that you want at a price that is lower than the other guy? That's all we care about. The satisfaction of the needs, of the demand side, of the people, of the lesser states. There is no room for ideology. So when we began speaking, you know, we talked about how uh, many outsiders think of economics as being driven by ideology. In this instance, it actually steps back from all the ideology. It just says, it's the supply side providing what the demand side wants. And if it's failing to do that in a sensible way, in a way that fun the fundamental theorem of wealth economics says, it should be providing these goods at the lowest cost possible because of competition, why isn't that happening? What is the market failure? So that opens up a vista of new research. What is the market failure in world order? Now, at this point, I might, it might, it's useful for us to think about political economy because uh, many will say, well, this idea of transplanting a marketplace into discussing world relations, it is what naive economists think about because we don't recognize that power relations in the world don't allow this kind of operation. But here I say economics and the marketplace. The marketplace came to being not because there was a law that said the marketplace had to come into being. Marketplace came to being because it was in the best interest of all concerned. Political economy tells us that the marketplace is sustained because it benefits everyone, not because a legal infrastructure dictates its existence. So here, you know, the political economy of Monsieur Olson, for instance, uh, Monsieur Olson talked about uh, how there was an earlier state of human development where bandits roamed the earth. They raped and pillaged. They picked off 100% of everything that everybody got because that's what benefited them the most until humanity became more productive in agriculture and in industry. And then these roving bandits realized that they should change their role. If they maintain law and order, they allowed industry and agriculture to prosper, this long-run growth would actually over time bring them at sensible rates of taxation, much more than they got from raping and pillaging. So this move from roving bandits to stationary bandits is a self-sustaining self legal infrastructure. And so, yes, international, you know, the relations between nations, uh, provided these incentive structures work, does not come, the marketplace does not spring up because a rule of law dictates that it should. It springs up because it's in the incentive of all players to have it extend. And as e economists, as scholars of the economic science, what we want to be thinking about in this domain is when will those conditions begin to assert themselves? When will the world move to that kind of a situation? When will the marketplace solve the problem of Hobbes? And I think that, uh, Productivity, what the people want, a flattening of the income distribution across countries in the world, uh, an apportionment of global power 
away from the hands of just the one or two great powers, a democratizing of power across the world because of improved technology, in increased productivity, that will set in place the emergence of a Marcel Olsen transition from roving bandit great powers to stationary bandits or uh, the advantages of a global government. So it, it's, it's, you know, for one of the, one of the really enriching, satisfying things in this research that I'm doing, this book I'm writing, is how very simple economic ideas have such powerful implications. We transport them to a different setting. And at the end of it all, it actually gives us a more optimistic view of the world than perhaps a more traditional, power-focused view of relations between nations. Fantastic. Well, now that I think people have been uh, surprised by how economics can make us more optimistic about human nature, I think we can move towards uh, economics teaching as something that you are definitely an expert in. And I'd say that, first to question, I think much like Milton Friedman, in fact, you're praised often for uniquely communicating ideas to general audiences who are not familiar with, uh, with academia and economics. So in that background, what do you think that economics educators need to do better to communicate? Well, first, you flatter me hugely. I am nowhere in the league of, of economists like Milton Friedman. I, every day I get up, I go to work, I try and do what I can. But one of the things that drives me, uh, actually from way back from when I was at the economics department in the London School of Economics, is how as professional economists, as economics professors, as a department of economics, we are often not as sensitive as we should be to how our audience is not just a representative consumer. There's not just one person out there that we are speaking economics with. And in my own interpretation of the audiences that I've seen from teaching at LSE for a long time, from teaching in other parts of the world, is that we need to think about there being at least, at least two different kinds of people in the audience. One kind are the students of economics who want to go on to become professional economists. They could be wanting to become professors of economics themselves or professional economists in other ways. We can oversimplify and think of these as people who want to be producers of economics. Okay, so they are producers to be. Then there's a huge chunk that we often in the economics profession ignore. And these are people who want to be consumers of economics. They don't want to necessarily be the one that comes up with the latest spiffy model of new international trade. They want to understand ideas in economics so that they can then fight the good fight, argue against the snake oil purveyors of bad economics. And that's all these people want. They want to understand good economics to a degree that they can be helpful to society. And here's the thing, both groups are hugely important. Both Teaching both groups is a challenge. And what we don't realize is that teaching economics 
to the producers to be of economics is very different from teaching economics to the consumers to be of economics. Producers of economics want to learn snazzy, small, focused mathematical models that will be useful for thinking about the next great idea. This is hugely important. The consumers of economics, it is not so helpful to them to be an expert in these small models of economics. What they need are the interconnections between different ideas. What they need is a context, a larger social context to think about ideas and economics. To the extent that I have been able to be a better communicator of economics ideas is I try and speak to the different audiences. Okay, now that involves a sacrifice because sometimes people, my professional colleagues will joke to me that you can lose your license as a professional economist if you continue to speak to non-economists because that involves a language and a way of thinking that's different. And there's a danger, no question, that, you know, to, to try and communicate ideas to non-economists or to consumers of economics, you might tend to oversimplify and you might tend to pander in a way that is disrespectful of the fundamental economic principles. So to the extent, to whatever small extent I've been successful, is that I try and keep in mind these two domains and I try to be careful about the way I navigate this. So for instance, in my work on um, the relations between nations world between, and, and world order, I'm obviously speaking to non-economists, but I try and be true to the economic principles. Great. So that's how, that's how I think about this. For um, students who might be choosing right now whether to go for option one or option two, a producer or a consumer, what do you think might be the one or maybe two briefly most important things that they should consider for whether they should enter academia or not to be successful? Okay, the, I would say the most critical thing is they've got to be clear about what they want to achieve. They might have in mind that, okay, they're gonna win the Clark Medal or the Jarl Hansen Medal or Nobel Prize in economics. And for that, then early on, they've got to settle into the producer to be of economics more. They've got to do that as quickly as possible. Um, later on, they might then feel they can expand and talk more generally, but they need to be extremely focused on that. If somebody wants to be a consumer to be of economics, the danger is if you get too suckered into, drawn into small models, then you lose the ability to connect with people, to draw the lateral interconnections, to pull in the big picture. So they need to be, everyone needs to be very clear about what, very sharply focused on what they're trying to achieve. And then in both domains, be ready with the examples of the successes of the profession, but be humble about our failures. So yes, point to how economics ideas practiced in perhaps you know, the most communist of nations, the People's Republic of China in 1979, ended up lifting hundreds of millions out of poverty but in the same breath, point to the abysmal state of the global environment, global climate change, talk about externalities and free rider problems and market failures, how we've never been able to solve those. So be proud, not arrogant of the successes of our profession, 
but be humble and admit where we have failed. And I think by doing that, we can be valuable to society. We can take the problems that society has and try and be helpful because I firmly, I spend a lot of time speaking to non-economists, but I firmly believe in the tools that I learned as a graduate student and that, you know, I try to, to, to work with and maybe try and push in different ways uh, as a young faculty member. Those tools are, are firm and they're valuable. Great. Thanks. For this part, let's move on to uh, Singapore and COVID-19 for current affairs. So just to begin, um, with the exception perhaps of migrant workers' conditions currently, Singapore has been hailed as one of the best performing nations under the crisis, along with the Republic of Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, etc. So would you have expected this before the pandemic struck if somebody had asked you? I think my, my expectations would have gone in that direction of preparedness and ability to deal with, I think, condition on a number of qualifications. So the first the reason for the optimism is that Singapore, along with some others of these states that you've mentioned, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, Malaysia, Brunei, we all suffered SARS 2003. We learned about the importance of having hospital beds, intensive care units, contact tracing, quarantine and isolation. Uh, we learned about the importance of testing. And so, some people around me here in Singapore have described it as having a playbook. We had a playbook ready to bring out, but that playbook took us a part of the way, but then we got hit by other kinds of shocks. We got hit by unexpected, um, unexpected occurrences. The world had become much more globalized. Uh, the, 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 the endurance, the speed, the rapidity with which the coronavirus, COVID-19 spread, exceeded that of the SARS virus. Uh, it exceeded in global spread what was happening with Ebola. So I think each time the, all of the nations that have been successful went back to fundamentals, asked what is it that's worked before, what do we need to adjust? So I put New Zealand in this camp as well. All of us, uh, learned early on the lessons about contact tracing, quarantine and isolation, testing, 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 together with safe distancing, mask wearing, and personal hygiene. Now, this all, in my view, sounds like just common sense, just good common sense. But the fact that it's not practiced everywhere in the world, that in the world, we're seeing debate about even wearing masks for political reasons. Uh, you know, it, it emphasizes to me how important it is that we keep repeating the simple message here. The coronavirus, parts of it are a mystery, but large other parts of it are not. Right? The coronavirus looks at humanity. It wants to spread. It wants to remain viable. So it looks at humanity and it sees two things in every single one of us. It sees us as food and it sees us as a taxi driver. Right? It wants to latch on to us and then it wants to hop. So 
everything that we can do scientifically to combat these two things is a win for humanity against the coronavirus. It's not rocket science, or at least it shouldn't be. The nations that you've mentioned that I think have been successful, that early on seem to have good traction on this, were all nations who believed in that science and practiced it. Do you mentioned masks as a commonsensical thing that people should be wearing um, and that's been successful so far. But in many Western countries that have the capability of wearing masks, where people can afford it and so on, they still haven't. And so people have been attributing it to stuff that maybe isn't in the economics domain, but stuff like norms and values and trust in the government and so on. So how, to what extent do you think that can explain the different behavior in East Asia versus in the West? Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So to unpack uh, uh, language that you've used, which is hugely important, uh, political sensibility, trust in government. I think as, as economists, we would think what gets this under control? Individual responsibility and a sense of social awareness. And the way you and I or other economists might think about this is that individual responsibility is what keeps us safe, the people around us safe. Social awareness is what allows us to translate that safety that we want for ourselves to the safety for all others. It allows us to, in the language that we would use, internalize some of the epidemic externality. Now, that's a very instrumentalist, economic-oriented way of describing this. It's got nothing to do with Asian sensibility or Eastern or Western. It's just economics applied to thinking about this. What is true is that in some nations, there has emerged a political narrative that says that my individual freedom is tied to the power that I have over my deciding not to wear a mask. Right? And it's a power that extends to others. It's a, it's a power, my sense of individual freedom allows me to be angry at other people. A Costco store, for instance, when it tries to tell me I need to wear a mask to come into it. So there's that sense of individual freedom. And a sense of individual freedom and individual empowerment is a wonderful thing to have. It's what allows humanity to be entrepreneurs, to reach out. But sometimes it works against individual responsibility and social awareness. Okay. And that's extremely unfortunate. When you say trust in government, I think of it also as trust in science. Science tells me, Dr. Fauci in the United States tells me that you know, mask wearing, social distancing, all of these are important for containing the spread. If I believed in science, I would believe them. I think, so why don't people believe them? Because there's a certain strand of political leadership that disputes that faith, that, that belief in science. So trust in political leadership need not always lead to the right outcome. So I think of it as an alignment of trust and confidence in science and expertise together with an enlightened set of policymakers that believe in individual responsibility social communitarian awareness together with the principles of science. 
So it, it is that rather than an Asian or, or Western uh, sensibility. However, having said that, there does seem to be an alignment when you look at the world map and look at the nations where coronavirus has seem, seemingly gone out of control in the United States, it accounts for one quarter of global uh, confirmed cases and deaths, and it continues to skyrocket. When you look at Brazil and you look at the transatlantic region in particular, it is a fever of red patches on the map. You look across in Asia, not so much, right? because Vietnam has had zero deaths. Uh, in Singapore, we've got a flare, we had a flare of cases from foreign worker dormitories, but all of that has been controlled, except our public health system is not overwhelmed. The number of cases in intensive care is actually in the low dozens. The number of deaths that we have is in the low scores. And New Zealand and elsewhere in the world that have practiced the same kind of contact tracing, quarantine isolation, uh, testing, and developed the same kind of individual awareness, individual responsibility and social awareness. New Zealand is the Western liberal democracy. Right? It is not uh, Asian in the traditional stereotype, but it's done remarkably well because it's followed these principles of political leadership and science. So these ideas, political leadership, evidence-based policy, sometimes just commonsensical policy being just implemented. That sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't happen, as you've said, in different countries. So why is it fundamentally, politically, political economy-wise, maybe historically, why Singapore tends to have these more often than many countries uh, around the world? Okay, I think a combination of, of uh, different reasons. One is a fairly obvious one, which is capable leadership. Capable leadership, no one has confidence and trust in incapable leadership, in leadership that is not able to get things done. So that's a necessary condition, but not sufficient. So what takes us the extra mile, what pushes us over the top? I think it's a, it's a narrative about where the nation needs to go and how we need to get there. Sometimes that narrative can be exaggerated. Sometimes it can be uh, a little over the top. And then in, you know, so years, perhaps in Western years, it sounds a bit like, like propaganda. Okay, so, and that's unfortunate because it shouldn't be. It's simply a narrative that helps people think about where they are and where they're going. What is the narrative in Singapore? I think it's a combination of things. Let me say what they are, but then let me quickly acknowledge that they are also uh, constantly being questioned. And there's constantly a political conversation about what we can do better. So the parts of the narrative that are, I think, very positive, meritocracy, that we surface the best, most capable people, and we put them to work at the things that they do well. And in a sense, this is also just, well, common sense. Why would you put someone who doesn't do well at something in a critical job? You want the best people to be doing the right job. But when we put meritocracy on that, then it also comes with the idea that there's an independence of your social background. You could come from a poor family, 
you don't speak with the right accent, that's okay. Because can you do the job well? Meritocracy will lift you up. And that's the good part of that, that narrative. But meritocracy by itself runs the potential criticism of being used as a narrative to justify entrenched elites, right? Because it's a self-sustaining kind of circular argument. We surface the best people. Therefore, the people who are in the best paying jobs must be the best people by definition. And so it runs the risk of being circular, right? But that's why meritocracy by itself would not cultivate the kind of trust. There also has to be the idea that uh, the system is built in such a way that lends and extends a helping hand to those who have been rendered unfortunate by circumstances beyond their control. So if they've been born in unfortunate circumstances, the system stands ready to reach out and help you. There should be upward mobility for all who work hard. There should be a constant uh, train of people moving up the moving up the income scale. Everybody should rise. So it is meritocracy plus other things. And these other things don't yet have sort of the nice compact word, but meritocracy by itself is subject to a, a, a I think quite a damning criticism. Fantastic. So let's move on to the fourth theme, just globally looking at policy in the WHO throughout the world. So you've named Vietnam, for example, as one of the Southeast Asian countries that have done surprisingly well, or perhaps not so surprisingly based on their experience. But there's also Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand that have had no cases just last week. Um, and countries like Australia have very similar policy regimes as these countries, yet have done far worse in terms of COVID cases. Many people have just been confused over why there's a difference. Do you have any ideas why there can be such a divergence if it's not because of policy? Um, well, I, th I think policy plays a huge role in, the, in determining the landscape that citizens then get to move in. So, uh, you know, social distancing, which is popular nowhere in the world. Nobody likes to be told they can't get together with their friends. But individual responsibility and community awareness is a large part of what makes a social distancing regime work. So I would say uh, policy provides that background, provides that landscape onto which we then transplant our individual actions. And it's got to be a combination of these two things that determines uh, the, the outcome in terms of cases and fatalities. And then beyond that, of course, the preparedness of a nation's infrastructure, how much, how many hospital beds a nation has, how many intensive care units, how many vent ventilators, all of these things then matter for the actual public health outcome. So globally also, certain countries did well on preparedness indexes even before the pandemic. So especially the US and UK had some, a lot of experts talking about the dangers of pandemics although this was not implemented later on in policy. But um, what do you think then are the tangible ways that people can promote the salience of uh, impacts that have really high impacts, but a very low probability, so are hard to get into the political conversation? So how can yeah. we do that? Yeah. I think here, in contrast to maybe what I was saying earlier about the profundity and the sharpness of economic ideas, here I might 
suggest pulling back a little bit. And here's what I mean by pulling back on, on sort of the, the super extension of economic principles. Here's what I mean. Low probability, high impact events in the normal calculation are really difficult to get right in terms of uh, you know, the probability of the occurrence multiplied by the scale of the impact equals the expected value of the, the, of the, the harm that they inflict. It's really difficult to get these tail events right. If we were doing the straightforward economics thing, we would say we maximize value subject to these expected, expected considerations. But here I might suggest in the same spirit of robustness type exercises, maybe overweighting a bit these extreme events in terms of their probability, overweighting them a bit. And what that does is it makes the actions that societies take shade a bit more towards robustness and resilience and away from simply extreme value maximization. So this simple transformation allows societies to then say, you know what, it's okay to have most of the time hospital beds that are empty, to have most of the time intensive care units that are unused. They're humming away in pre preparedness, but we don't need to drop them. Because, you know, in a super efficient world, we would say we squirrel away into these resources, we transform them into money-making enterprises, and we remove some of our robustness and resilience capacity. So I would say we can, through a very simple, uh, through, through simple adjustment, move away from extreme, from value extreme maximization to building in robustness and resilience. And when we do that, actually there are other implications. Uh, if it is this, if it is pandemic type, events that are the low probability, high impact events we will need to watch out for. Then by weighting these probabilities differentially, we start asking questions about the need for crowded central business districts. Right? Crowded central business, business, central business districts have come to being because humanity figured out that was the most super efficient way to, to achieve value. By having creative people working elbow to elbow, cheek by jowl, having financiers working together, bouncing ideas off of everybody else, having creatives speaking to each other constantly in a crowded central business district, and having a, an entire support system built around that, we maximize value. And indeed, we succeeded at that. But what this pandemic tells us is that we can actually get a lot done. We can get 95% of what we need to done without the central business district. And if we take forwards that thinking, what does that do? Well, income inequality. One of Thomas Piketty's brilliant insights was that it was the, the premium of return on capital, the rental on capital over the growth rate of everything else in the economy that made for these sharp income inequalities. Well, if we remove the high rents from squeezed real estate in central business districts everywhere around the world. That flattens the income distribution. We remove the high rental premium off of extremely scarce capital. That mitigates one of the strong Piketty mechanisms for income inequality. Further, by moving away from you know, 
value extreme maximization, we remove the incentive for squeezing every little ounce out of inefficiencies in financial markets, remove the incentive for creating collateralized debt obligations to extract the last penny of rent from unexploited financial markets. We remove the need for superstar returns on a lot of economic activity. Seems to me we make the economy a much more sensible place. It's not hyped up running on speed. We flatten the income distribution and we guard against future low probability, high impact pandemic type events. Seems to me this is a win-win situation. So we need to take the right lesson from this. Great. Just today, Bill Gates wrote in The Economist talking about how we're not going to get uh, a post-pandemic world before we stop and uh, find a vaccine. So to fund vaccine development, there are a few different ways of doing it. You could have temporary patent monopolies. You could make a price fund. You could have governments commit to paying a higher price. Which of these kinds of options do you think is best and which do you think is most realistic to happen? That's a really excellent and timely question. Um, not least, in addition to, to what Bill Gates wrote, we also already see large, powerful groups, entire nations seeking to corner the market in particular drugs, in particular proto-vaccines that might become available. And that worsens the geostrategic competition we were discussing earlier. So the question about systems for producing uh, things like vaccines actually puts together both an incentive mechanism, you know, what is it that will potentially be more successful for creating the output, but also the dissemination, the distribution of the product after it's produced, because we could give 100% monopoly forever to the creator of a vaccine that would maximize the incentive for everyone to find that vaccine. But then if that vaccine is not widely distributed for humanity, that actually rather curtails the gains that humanity has been able, might have been able to attract from this. So we need, what we really need here is the appropriate balance between the incentive for creation and then the capacity for distribution afterwards. And the problem that I, and interestingly, Bill Gates and other writers have with this is that strong intellectual property rights, temporary monopolies through patent protection on vaccines, they might give strong incentives for the creation of these vaccines, but then they curtail the efficient distribution afterwards. And I say interestingly, because we'll, we'll remember that for decades, uh, so many people in the software community identified Bill Gates as being the protector of intellectual property rights, strong intellectual property rights on software. The, the considerations are ones that, that change with different industries and different goods and services. For the vaccine situation, I think we need to treat this almost as like a, it's like a Sputnik moment. Now we need to realize, humanity needs to realize we see a challenge, we see a great challenge. And our existence as humanity depends on our being able to meet this challenge. We need to bring every resource together 
to find that vaccine. When there's a burning house, you pull everything together to keep everyone safe. We're in a burning house. This is a sputtering moment for humanity. We need to bring together a concerted project across the best minds in science, technology, medicine, and social science to come up with a way to beat this coronavirus, to beat COVID-19. And as we do that, we realize that the fruits from this project have to be equitably, fairly distributed across human for all humanity. America went to the moon, America explored space back in the old days, not to make America great again, but because there was something to celebrate for humanity. We need to bring that back into the calculation. So having solved the vaccine problem, let's move into uh, the last problem, which is the post-pandemic world. So just firstly, extremely broadly, um, how do you think that COVID will restructure political and economic power after, maybe shortly after, maybe in the long run, and especially how ASEAN countries might play a, bit, play a bigger role? Okay. I think the, the, the many great disruptions converging in your, in your excellent question. Because if it were just COVID-19, then we could maybe reflect on some of the earlier part of our discussion where we talked about flattening of the income distribution, reduction of income inequality from capital and labor, changing importance, uh, a rethink of what the urban infrastructure should look like. All of those are still on the cards. But COVID-19 happened at a time when other great disruptions were already also occurring in the world. We had a deglobalization. We had geostrategic competition, okay, US-China rivalry spilling over into a technology confrontation that will impact details like what kind of mobile phone telephony we will, different parts of the world will have access to. We were sitting in the midst of, uh, you know, uh, a conversation veering into an argument, veering into direct confrontation between rich and poor in every society on income inequality. And we had a growing disrespect for science and expertise. We forget now in all the politicizing of the World Health Organization and the coronavirus, that actually just a year before this in 2019, on World Health Organization's horizon as one of the great public health dangers was vaccine hesitancy, the anti-vax movement. The group of people who were gaining in political strength and momentum who were against members of their community getting vaccinated at all. So, you know, COVID-19 came onto this, into this global stage against a backdrop of all of these great disruptions. Uh, and we seriously, humanity, political leadership, uh, the academic community seriously needs to rethink how we situate all of these great disruptions, how we can not just recover by having a vaccine and then going back to business as usual, but leverage these changes to make the world less disrupted, continue to have a reduction of poverty, continue to bring humanity to greater control of their destiny. How will it reshape the world? I think from for decades already, for the last 30 years, we have seen a shift in economic power the economic center of gravity of the world away from the transatlantic region towards East Asia, 
driven by a lot, yes, the rise of China, but not just China. Uh, the ASEAN nations in the way that they have dealt with COVID-19 has shown a coming together, respect for science, and ability for governments to actually get things done. No. Respect of the global community goes, yes, with economic power, but it also goes with competence. It also goes with good governance. And all the dimensions that we've been talking about suggest a reshaping of the world away from its traditional transatlantic axis, perhaps one that's more, more balanced, more respectful of how different capabilities are organized differently around the world. And for many of the great challenges that are going to come in the near future, it might well be that the way in which poverty reduction has happened in China, the way in which management of financial markets has taken place in Singapore, the way in which management of COVID-19 type pandemics has occurred across uh, the Australasian region, including New Zealand, all of this argues for a rethink of the traditional centers of power view of the world as being you know, situated 15 kilometers outside Washington, D.C. And it's not, just, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a moralistic argument. It's not a saying that you know, uh, the traditional West has had its time with leadership of the world. It's now time for someone else. It is based simply on very realist view of what's happening in the world. And COVID-19, bizarrely, has helped accelerate those forces. ASEAN is showing that despite all the disagreements within the 10 nations, it is actually a coalition of the capable. And it might be that going forwards, what we need are these coalitions of the capable that will restructure how we make important decisions in the world. Fantastic. That does sound more optimistic than other things might have heard on this topic. Um, but in terms of within countries and how that might change, you've already spoken a bit about how dense agglomeration in cities should probably diminish because we've seen that benefits, while well, most of them, can still be had somewhat remotely. So you've suggested a second mirroring internet um, as a backup to, to the first. Um, so how would we feasibly try to transition out of agglomeration within countries? Yeah, I think the, well, first let me pick up the, what you said about the second mirroring internet, because it is an example, yet another example of a resilience buffer. If we move to a world where we're no longer working elbow to elbow, but we still need the creativity and spark, and we're currently getting that, through telecommuting, telemedicine, telecommunications, we need to be assured to wear a belt and suspenders too, that that telecommunications will not be disrupted. And having a second mirror internet behind the first provides us that sense of redundancy. It will not be the most efficient way to run things. There'll be fiber optic cables and, and rare earth minerals that lie idle most of the time but you know what? That's okay, because if we really need them, they're there. Now, um, so how will this second mirroring internet then you know, sort of work as, uh, to flatten the global infrastructure? Because we will then have lost this obsession 
we're trying to squeeze every ounce of efficiency out of the environment around us. What we want, what humanity needs is for us to gain control of our destiny. And we need to do it in a way that respects our environment. It seems to me everybody should be able to buy into that uh, narrative. And we now actually presented the opportunity to do that. Do you know what kind of policy levers, say a group that was pushing for it, lobbying for something, what's the main important things that they would ask for? Okay. I think it's uh, maybe it's not necessarily so much... It, uh, when, when, I, when I think about groups that are lobbying to get this, that, or the other, I, I fall back into a way of thinking that says that these are vested interests. They're looking out for their own end and, and seeking something less. I think what we need to do is to keep in mind the greater social community-wide considerations here. And what are those? Uh, we need better scientific knowledge in everyone, basic data literacy. If I'm trying to explain to people why social distancing works and it relies on probability and chances of infection, it's better if going forward, all of us have that basic literacy. Uh, so basic data and scientific literacy, let's form an interest group that pushes for that. Free and open discourse, because really it's only with free and open discourse that we get confidence and trust across communities, across different members of our community. Now this might seem, and, and, and I say this because I, I don't want to say that this seems peculiar or it seems unexpected given the conversation that we had previously about individual responsibility and social awareness because that seemed to be set against, in some parts of our world, individual freedom, the freedom to just ignore what everybody else wants. But I think free and open discourse that allows people to be made uncomfortable by other people's ideas. And I think it's very worrying that over these past however many decades, in those parts of the world where free and open discourse was supposed to be the modality, we've gotten ourselves into a situation where free and open discourse is no longer possible, not because laws have been put in place, rules are there, government is telling people not to do things. But because of the way, um, because of the way political conversations have so driven people, driven people into such extremes, and we need to bring that political conversation back to the center. So let's have a lobby group to bring people back to the center, to allow once again, free and open discourse in a way that tests and aggravates people in safe ways so that we can then actually move forwards as societies. As the last substantive question in this section, you've suggested that COVID shown us how important the relationship is between science, reason, and public policy. Do you think in a political economy perspective that there are certain institutions, things that we can enshrine into law that foster this kind of behavior or this kind of reason in public policy that other institutions don't? Um, well, that's a, that's a really tricky question because um, my worry, you know, is that when we try and make our legal structures ever more targeted, we run into unintended consequences. And so I would myself refrain from tinkering further with our legal system 
but be adaptive in how uh, societies engage with each other, make universities and schools once again a vital part of the way we make decisions and engage in conversations. These are not just places where we fought people off and then four, four years later, we bring them back into society. So schools and universities need to be an integral part of the development of a civic consciousness and a social awareness in, in all our societies. And, and we're trying to do that in Singapore. And I think I would love to see this greater role, in, expanded role for universities everywhere. So finally, having spoken of all these issues altogether, what of all of it gives you any hope? I actually, I think I'm relatively optimistic. I do think that out of all this dangers and, and, and conflicts and tensions and geostrategic competition, uh, you know, the, the good outcome, the outcome that benefits more of humanity will prevail. We will find the economic mechanisms that drive us closer towards the right place. So I suppose I am optimistic about how we will evolve going forward. Professor Danny Kwa, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation from your, all your questions. Thank you. Great, thank you. Have a great day. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time.